Hello, everybody, and welcome to Mrs. G's Storytime. We are reading the book Stones of Fire by Isabel Kuhn with permission of OMF International, and we are on Chapter 7, Part 3. They met many trucks of nationalist soldiers going to the Mekong to fight, but they themselves were undisturbed that first day and night. By the morning of the second day, they could hear firing and decided to make for the mountains as soon as possible. Just above the spot where Mary had seen Mama's group far below on the Burma Road, the firing became so loud that the little group huddled together for a flock of, like a flock of sheep. A noise in the bushes below them made them crouch lower. Then the bushes parted, and a scared face of a nationalist soldier appeared. He looked so frightened to see them that they grew courageous. And Junia, who could speak Chinese, said, What's going on? We're fighting the Reds, answered the soldier, drawing himself up to the trail. But I'm clearing for home. Don't you report me if you see the rest of my gang. We won't, but who's winning, asked Dunya curiously. Don't really know, but I think we are. The battle is hottest at Waya. Where are you fellows going? We're from the Salween, said Dunya, and we came by here to pick up one of our numbers who was to wait for us, but we don't see him. Oh, he won't be here, said the soldier. He will have gone. The battle's been raging since last night, and you will walk right into it if it is if you go your usual road. I know because my home is near here. Go to that village and ask for a guide to take you up over the top of this mountain through the woods. That is your best plan, and he disappeared. The Lesu grouped close together and asked Junia to interpret what the man had been saying, and the shooting began to get thunderous and much closer, so Junia took command. Everyone to the top of this mountain. We must hide in the woods there. And with that, they ran. Mary could run, too, as fleet and sure-footed as a mountain goat, especially as she had no load to carry, and the brethren had seen to that. By late afternoon, they had reached the top, found a place deep in the woods where they would be hidden from view, and attempted to build a fire large enough to cook some rice, yet small enough not to be noticed. They could hear the sounds of distant firing, so knew that the battle was still in progress. There they spent that November night, and long before daylight were up, cooking breakfast so that they might be on the road by the first streaks of day. A man promised to guide them over the top and onto the road from where their path would be familiar, and this he did, and when they descended into the ravine where the river flows, their hearts were elated. Feeling now that they were safe in the battle behind them, they had not gone far when someone discerned another lacy on ahead of him all by himself. A second look, and they recognized it was Solomon. Oh, what a shout of joy awakened the rocky echoes of the ravine, and the joy of poor Solomon to find himself once more in the bosom of the Olives family. That is such a comfortable feeling to be surrounded by well-known faces and voices and manners. Their tongues wagged as they compared notes. Solomon waited, he told them, as under agreement, until he heard the sound of firing, and people running by warned him of the approaching battle. Then, taking to his heels, he followed those fugitives as they led him past the meeting of the stream's town and other usual stopping places, which were in the line of fire. They had pointed out the general direction, and he had gradually found the road. As they walked and talked, rounding a curve in the road brought them without warning upon three soldiers sitting by the roadside, resting. Up went three guns. What people? Poor Lacey, who carried loads, vaulted Junia in his strong accent in tribal Chinese, were going home. Oh, then we'll walk with you, for we're going towards there, too. And the three lowered their guns, and getting up for the road journey once more. They're brenegades, whispered Junia, in Lesu to his frightened groups, who huddled close to him. I know their clothes and the caps, 
That bunch that robbed the Lairds last May wore those. But the soldiers appeared very friendly, chattering and asking questions, trying to find out if the Lacey had seen the fight. Junior was very guarded in his replies and purposely vague and stupid. He soon saw that they understood no Lacey, so he felt relieved he could talk to his friends without being understood. The communists looked hungry and worn. Obviously, they had had nothing to eat for some time. They explained their presence as having been lost, separated from their regiment and hoping to find it in the hills. Junia took all this in and made up his mind. They're weak from hunger, I bet, he said, in snitches to Mary and the others. Let's walk fast and we'll outstrip them without openly running from them. Who knows where the rest of this gang is and what will happen if we meet a lot of them. Now no man, white or Chinese, can equal the tribesmen's fast dog trot on the hills. On the plain we outstrip them easily, for they say their legs hurt when they walk on the horizontal. But on the rolling hills or even the high mountains they are like wild goats. Soon a distance began to come between the three soldiers and the small Lesu group. Wait for us. Don't go so fast, called out the Reds, beginning to see what was happening. Junia muttered something of excuse, and the Olives band sped silently on. The communists tried to quicken their pace, even to run, but Junia had guessed correctly. Hunger had weakened them, and distance between them and the Lesu grew every moment. Ah, you're mean and your hearts aren't good, they called, panting after the fast-disappearing Lesu. But it was of no avail. Chuckling, they sped out of sight. The hills gradually became lower, then they fell away entirely into the mountain-girt little plain of Tesogen, which is the usual stopping place. The little stream wandered slowly through the middle and tucked in against the foot of the western hills or a few mud-housed villages. At the far end of the plain, Mary could see the tower which denoted the town from which the plain gets its name. We had better not camp here tonight, said Junia. He said that their group was in the mountains. Probably he meant the mountains to the south. We better not take a chance. Mary, can you still go further? Can you make the hot springs before eating? Yes, she panted shortly. Go on, I can keep up. And so they sped over the little plain and well into the mountains west towards the Salween Canyon, passing a few huts by the roadside. Junia stopped to ask, Have you seen any soldiers lately? No, nothing since you passed here last week. Everything's quiet, was the comforting reply. So by dark they had come to that little dell at the foot of the big climb, where both hot and cold water run night and day from the bowels of the earth. No one was in sight. Dropping wearily on the ground, they stretched out for a few moments of luxurious relaxation, and then up with a spring to go and find firewood before night held all from the sight. Thirty miles they had walked that day, and without daring to stop at noon for either food or rest. Mary, you just sit here and rest. We'll find the wood and cook the supper, said the very kind brethren. So she sat warming her hands gratefully as a red flame shot up and the dry branches crackled merrily. One of the sweet joys of life is that grateful rest period when the day's labor is over and well done, and one just has to sit around the cozy warmth and chat. But tonight, Mary was uneasy. At each twitter of the wooden heights above them, at each crackle of the branch under some animal's foot, she startled and looked uneasy at the others. They tried to appear unconcerned, but Caleb said, Don't you think we'd better try to make the river crossing at Dahan tomorrow? I feel safer on our own side of the Salween. There was a chorus of acquiescence only. Could Mary make it? It would be at least 50 miles and a big climb over the pass was included. Mary was already asleep, wrapped in her blanket by the side of the fire. 
the comforting food, the pleasant warmth, and the weariness all combined, and she was in dreamland for the land. Quietly the men chattered for a while, every now and again, uneasily scanning the horizon, but as all seemed normal, they were soon asleep. Next day they did that fifty miles, Mary with them, though how she did it in her condition is nothing short of a miracle. But on the evening of that day, the group rolled up in the sand on their own side of the Saltwing River and went to sleep comforted. The next morning, Mary could not walk. Her ankles were swollen. It was obvious that she could never do 30 miles that day. Nothing daunted, the brethren got some poles and made a mountain chair. Some took double loads, and those thus left free carried Mary in the chair. And that night, they reached Olive's. Oh, the blessedness of home, be it ever so humble, there's no place like home. When Mama heard this story a month later, she asked anxiously, And was Mary ill from that awful experience? It was enough to kill her walking that distance. Oh, no, they replied. After a few days' rest, she was up and about her work as usual. She carried water and wove the cloth and was quite all right. Chapter 8 The Communist Stone of Fire it was already December before Mama and Danny once again arrived home at Olive's. Chung King had fallen to the communists, and it was but a matter of time in Mama's judgment before all China fell. It was customary for the new regime to delay missionaries at the place where it found them. So if Mama had been found in Pashan, it would have been difficult to get a travel permit to return to Le Sulin. Fearing this, she did not wait for Ma Pa to arrive for Kuming but hurried home with Danny so that the new government might find her in the rightful field. Ma Pa had already left Kunming, bringing the newly printed books with him, but how he would get across the Ming Kong now that the bridge was destroyed was a problem. He was bringing Ava to sing with him, a graduate now from the Tali Hospital. She had chosen to come back to do medical work among the lay Sioux, rather than accept any lucrative positions open to Chinese graduate nurses. To her dismay, Mama found Mary in bed. Mama, Mary whispered, I cannot retain any food. This is the worst trouble. Well, said Mama, rest is the best thing. I'll do all, all I can to help, and when Ava arrives, she will doubtless be able to relieve you in other ways. Christmas was approaching, and still Ma Pa had not arrived. Nor was, was there any word what happened to him and Ava. Friday, the 23rd, was fixed as a day assembling, and once more the festival was to be held in the village of Olives. Monday of that week, a small note was handed to Mama. It read, Dear Mama, we're going down to liberate Olives this week. Don't be afraid. I will be there in person, and I have my men under control. Do not try to run, and do not hide your things. You will not be harmed at all. I promise you, I hope to pass Christmas with you all. The writer is Red Thomas. Shortly afterwards, Gaius arrived with an imperturbable expression on his face. One he often has when good reason demands keeping counsel and being discreet. He whispered he would appreciate seeing Mama privately. So as soon as possible, the opportunity was given to him. Lucing alone, being allowed to remain during their talk. Last night at the Lama village on the trading deal, he said, I saw Red Thomas and communist troops there. He says he's coming down here this week, but I noticed he's bringing some heathen robbers with him, and so I asked the reason, and he replied that Laird Dwan is wily. He needed to be well prepared. He said that Mama was not going to be annoyed, and the heathen robbers were under his control, but I thought you ought to know. Lama is only a day's journey from Olives. As this was an important matter, neither Gaius nor Lu Sing dared to be responsible for counseling Mama, but she did the best thing. 
asked the Lord's counsel. And after time on her knees with the open word of God, she felt definitely that he had given her Malachi 3:17 and 18. My treasured possession, I will spare them, just as in compassion a man spares his son who serves him. And you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. He led us to return here, Mama said simply to her anxious friends, and I feel his word to me is that we will be kept. Except for hiding a few medicines and kerosene, I will do just as Thomas said, make no preparation but prayer. Evening brought Brother Three, who had come to help prepare for the Christmas festival. He was disappointed that Ma Pa had not arrived, but quite agreed with Mama and her stand, and so they awaited developments. On Wednesday afternoon, Lucing walked into Mama's shanty with his face grim. They've arrived. At least five communists are down at Hannah's house, the vanguard, they say, and the village is to prepare food for 180 men tonight. What are you going to do, asked Mama. Don't know. The headman has escaped. Guess he's afraid because of those guns he took by force from northern Lacey last autumn. The rest of us have no guns. Here's another note from you for you from Red Thomas. Nathaniel brought it just now. We'll be lucky if food is all we lose, he muttered half to himself and went out by the door. This note was like the first one. It was very affectionate and humble and assured Mama that she would have nothing to fear. But at dusk, Lucing once more appeared, his face flushed and angry. Mama, you got to go into my house next door. There's going to be a battle here tonight. Then in a low whisper, pointed down the southern trail with an agitated finger. The Laird's got soldiers hidden in the fold of the mountain on the southern trail and into olives. They have sent word that they are going to get those five Reds who came to order food and that they will kill any one of us who feeds a communist. What will you do, whispered Mama in alarm. The food is already cooked. We men are going to melt out of sight. It's the only thing we can do. It's not convenient to take sides. We're carrying Mary up to Abigail's house. You and Danny go into mine. Lucing's new big two-story mud house was nearly finished. Its walls were almost a foot thick, so it was bulletproof. Mama's house, having only braided bamboo mats for walls, would not be safe. As a matter of fact, the big mud house, though it looked so fine, was clammy and damp inside, and Mary had to be removed to loosing Ma's bamboo shanty. But under gunfire, it was not safe, so she was being carried up to the most out-of-the-way shanty. She had been unable to retain food for a month and was very weak in consequence. Mama waved lovingly to her as she passed by, and a wan smile came back. Mama washed Danny in the big clay house, and as dark fell, suddenly three gunshots pierced the quiet at the northern end of the dell from which the Reds must enter. Caught in among the mountainous rocks, each shot echoed until it sounded like twenty. But after that it was all silent. The whole night passed in peace and the next morning Lucing appeared with a grimace. Somebody must have told, not a soul on either side here this morning. All is peace. Mary wants to come back home. She feels better now, she says. Thursday passed in peace. Friday morning the communists were in possession, and Red Thomas, with his liberation captain and a couple of soldiers, stayed in Lucing Pa's shanty so that Mary had to be moved again, this time to the old chapel next door. This, the chapel where they were married, had thick clay walls and was now being used as a church kitchen. So being Lucing's property, he had placed a big granary there and made a bed on top of it for Mary. She had had some more hemorrhages and had to lay flat on all the time now. She heard Lucing say to Red Thomas, Friend, I do not think you're safe here. You ought to be careful. And Thomas replied, Oh, I have been posted in the hills around. We're watching. 
but at noon gunshots in the mountain above were heard. Other shots answered them. The shooting increased, came nearer. Then the voice of Yawapa boomed down the mountain slope. Every villager to his house. Anyone on the, st- the road is at peril for his life. And this was followed by ping, ping, ping of a machine gun. Lu Sing Ma, who was cooking in the old chapel now that her old shanty had been taken over by communists, said to her husband, What's that? But before anyone could answer, the door flung open and in rushed Red Thomas. He walked up to Lu Sing Ma and signaled for her turban. And your coat, Lu Sing Pa, he whispered, then hastily putting him on, he hurtled his communist clothing into a bag and threw it into the corner, saying, Look after this for me. He disappeared out the door. At the same time, shots came fast and furious now from the upper trails going northward. Loosing Pa stepped to the door, took one look, and said, We're surrounded. My pig is outside. Do you think? But Loosing Ma did not have time to finish, for the door once more was dashed open and Loosing appeared. Going up to Mary, he said, Everything all right? Can I do anything for you? Well, they have ambushed the communists, and I'm sure they will beat them. I'm helping Mama and Danny into our house to be safe. I could see from the porch some fellows trying to climb the eastern precipice were peppered by guns. I don't think they make that climb. Do you see where Thomas went? He had on white trousers. Someone like that was racing across the fields trying to make the northern pass. The bullets were hitting the earth all around him, but I think he got away. What did he have on his head? asked Lucing Ma indignantly. Yes, that's the only thing. He had a turban and blue coat on, and Thomas, of course, was wearing a soldier's coat and cap. Oh, drawled Using Pa, reaching for the bag thrown in the corner, pulling out Thomas's cap and coat. He was, was he? What do you suppose this is? And then, as Lucing excitingly recognized the clothing, the whole story was told. Huh, grunted Lucing. We must not harbor his things here, for our place will be searched. He's an old friend, and I could not refuse to take him in. Well, I will bury these in the mountainside. I dare to have them around. For four hours the fighting raged, and at the end of that time the dell was quiet. Four communists lay dead, and three were captured. The rest had melted away. The laird's men came down off the trails and hunted through the village. It was Yawapa, all right. He had not escaped to Burma, as some thought but had merely gone to the laird and Captain Tensing. Other feudal lords were joining them, but conveniently had not arrived until they saw that Dewan was going to win. Again, the door of Mary's refuge was dashed open, and Bonerji's heathen brother, followed by the laird soldiers, came in and stood in front of Mary in the granary. They're harboring Red Thomas. I know they are. He's hiding under Mary at this very moment, he accused excitingly. The laird's men knew Lu Sing and hesitated, but Lu Sing himself pushed into the fast-filling room. My wife is sick, and I won't have her scared, but neither will I put up with these lies. Give me time to get Mary down in, into our shanty, and, Father, you get the crowbar and open the granary. It is now because it's nearly filled with grain. Oh, don't bother, said one of the soldiers, ashamed, as Mary was wearily trying to climb down from the high cupboard. No, I insist that you prove this accusation false, demanded Lucing, also excited. So after the poor girl had been carried to the lower house, the granary was forced open to reveal just unhauled rice. But it had the effect Lucing wished. The soldiers melted out the door shamefaced with apologies, and no one saw the bag still huddled in the corner. When dark fell on the mountain, Dell, 
a runner came in from the south. He brought an important piece of news, a government document, notifying the feudal lords that the governor of Yan'an Providence had submitted to the communists and that now the whole Providence was under the new regime and calling on them to submit also. If only that runner hadn't come at noon, the blood of communists was not yet dry on the ground, and here was news that all China had now fallen to them. Feudal lords in the remote little valley, how could they possibly hope to hold it against the whole of China? The lairds had made their beds in Lu Xing's house, of course. They always took over the best place in the village. Brother Three, who had not yet his own cabin, at Lu Xing's invitation was occupying the upper room under which the lairds were to sleep. Until midnight, they heard them discussing their problem. How could they gain face with the new regime after the battle of that afternoon? Before dawn, they had their resolution. They picked on the weak place in Red Thomas's plan. The heathen robbers he had brought with him. They weren't communists we fought. They decided to publish. They were well-known robbers. We were protecting the people. So when Saturday morning arrived and Mama rose to meet the new day, Brother Three told her at the breakfast table the astounding news that Grandpa now was also red. I can't keep my face straight when I think of it, he said. They calmly announced to me just now that they are communists too, since last night. Well, what has been worrying me, said Mama anxiously, are those three boys they have captured, and some say they're going to kill them. Why, they're new believers who are coming to spend Christmas with us. Yesterday was assembling day, you remember. Do you think those boys were communists? They met Thomas and accepted his badge. That is what makes it impossible for me to do anything. Yes, they did know all that the badge implied, Mama argued anxiously. Thomas is a Christian. He said he was going to come to celebrate Christmas here, too. They don't understand this political fight. Well, we certainly must try and do something, said Brother Three, especially for little Boto. He was only 15 years old. Whereupon the two missionaries prayed, and light was given them in the darkness. Brother Three went to Laird Duan and Mama to another Laird, and the jest of their plea was the same. They said quietly that the group ambushed yesterday was most certainly communist, for they had talked personally with Red Thomas, and since the Lairds themselves were not submitting to the new regime, it would be part of wisdom to deal leniently with those captured. This took the Lairds' excuse away, and again they consulted together, coming to the decision to ask for a peace party, and that Brother Three accept the position of a guarantor that this was not a trick, but was bona fide. He did so gladly, so each of them drew up a paper to this effect and stamped it with their personal seals. Then came the question the missionaries had been hoping for. Who was going to take the letter asking for a truce? Not a soul in the Laird's party was willing to go north into the mountains and hunt for the chagrin, angry communist. Why not let Boto take it, the missionary suggested. This was held with pleasure as a fine solution, and so Boto was freed and started on his journey. After a few hours of bustle, the lairds withdrew, and the village of Olives was at last in peace. It was Christmas Day. But peace was short-lived. The next day, a letter addressed to Mama, but was really meant for the village, arrived, signed by Red Thomas. It was a very angry letter, accusing Olives of treachery and saying that there was no use to refute the charge, as he, Red Thomas, knew all about it, and the names of those who had played false and revenge was sure. With that letter came an oral word that the heathen robbers were to be let loose upon olives to kill, plunder, loot, anything they liked that could be reckoned as punishment. This time it really appeared that olives was in danger. The laird and the, their men had withdrawn. The heathen robbers were noted for their veracity and ruthlessness and the most dreaded robbers in the canyon. 
there was good for looting, for olives had just harvested splendid crops of rice and cotton. This time, a temporary withdrawal seemed the unwisest course. But that morning, Mama had been struck by a verse on her calendar. It was, Do not leave your post. Ecclesiastes 10.4 It had come with the impress of the Spirit which accompanies the voice of the Lord. I do not know why, but I believe God has told me not to run, she said. Well, I can't run, said Lu Sing. Mary's in no condition for such. We must stay, whatever happens. After the fighting on Friday, she had two hemorrhages and was unconscious. Brother Three said he certainly was not going to run, and so they waited, hour after hour, even for several days, trusting the Lord to undertake, which he did. The man in white trousers who successfully dodged those many bullets was not Thomas at all, but a local cowherd on his way home. Thomas had hidden himself in Lucing's haystack by the road to the waterhole. All night he lay concealed there, and as everyone went up that trail to get water for supper and was discussing the affair, Thomas learned everything. He learned how Yawapa had run to summon Laird Dwan, which of the heathen villagers had helped, pointing out where the Reds were hiding. He had learned everything, just as he had said. But before the heathen robbers were let loose, little Boto from his peace letters had arrived, and that changed the complexion of the whole situation. No telegraph or telephone, not even a daily postal system. There was no way by which Thomas could inform Mama that his proposals were accepted until she received word that the Communist Truce Party was already in the village and on their way to her shanty for an interview with her. In that one hour, she received a second piece of news, namely that the Lairds had changed their mind. They had heard that truce would mean that they must hand over their guns and that Laird Dwan said he would never do. The messenger casually added that one of the peace party already ascending the hill to see Mama was a communist woman soldier. That to Mama was the last straw. She pictured a young Amazon with a pitchfork type of female, and her heart sank, but they were almost there. Dusk had fallen as the communist party entered, and Mama's first anxious glance searched for the woman soldier. Then she gave a sigh of relief, for she was just a slightly built Chinese student girl in a usual blue cotton gown, big rain hat, and cloth slippers on her feet. The villagers, heathen as well as Christian, were pouring into the shanty, so Mama slipped towards a seat at the side. Fasten that door open, commanded the deputy officer of the department. The door was obediently tied back by one of his men. The party consisted of four, the Yo Chang and the young captain who had been ambushed, Red Thomas and the girl soldier. Mama offered tea, and the three men took it, and the girl refused. Coming in at last, she had taken a seat at the table next to the door, the seat usually occupied by Mama at breakfast, and Mama made a mental note. She'll catch cold, for when that door is open, that seat is right in the big draft. Well, we'll finish this story up next week. I love you, I'm praying for you, and bye-bye for now.